Today on the Dolby Institute podcast, I sit down with writer and director Sophie Bartz to discuss her breakout Sundance hit, The Pod Generation. The sound is a tool that is under taught, I, th I think, in film school and that people don't pay attention on in post-production. And I think it's a huge mistake because it's, um, we are like, there are filmmakers like David Lynch who pay extreme attention to sound and like build their careers on sound and sound design and music. And you see the films, they stay with you. They touch a subconscious, very deep thing inside of you because they have the, the sound to support it. The film is a hilariously biting near future sci-fi satire about a young couple who turned to a corporate tech giant to help them carry their new baby literally to term. This film was the winner of this year's Dolby Institute Fellowship, which is our program where we give a grant to an exceptional independent film to finish in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. In this wide-ranging conversation with Sophie, we discuss how she blends satire with science fiction and all with a great sense of humor. I started our conversation by asking Sophie how she would describe the film to people who haven't seen it yet. So usually it comes from dreams. I have a dream journal and uh, when I was expecting my child, um, I had insane dreams, pregnancy dreams, which I think is something normal that happens. I've talked to other pregnant ladies and I think there's a hormonal thing that happens and you have extremely vivid dreams. Also, maybe because you're about to do something very important for humanity, there is the collective unconscious or something that activates inside of you. So all the dreams that are in the film are actually dreams that I had. Uh, and then it was also the theme uh, of the commodification of the unthinkable, which is the womb, which I think was a continuation of the work I explored in my first film, where Paul Giamatti extracts his soul and has to live without a soul, and then souls can be traded and frozen. And <laughs> so I think living in America, in a way, has triggered this passion for exploring the commodification of everything. And it's a theme that um, I think I'm continuing to explore. Even in my period film, Madame Bovary, is about a woman who loses herself into consumption. It's like the first, she had the first credit card that <laughs> in the 19th century that was inventing, like the term credit just was invented around that time. And I think that was also something that interests me. How, like, like the fact that we've lost sight that we don't see human beings as an end by themselves, but as a means, a means of consumption, a means of generating more money, that's something that I don't know why, but it really interests me, like how capitalism has, has reduced human beings to just a function instead of being an end. Um, so these are teams. And then all the teams of technology, I mean, when you have ideas, I think it's a lot of things that coalesce together. And uh, uh, one of my favorite books when I was a teenager was Brave New World. So of course, there is a huge influence from that book, from George Orwell, from Barjavel, who is a sci-fi writer, French sci-fi writer. So there's, I think it's a combination of a lot of things and the project has been in gestation for a long time. Um, and then finally came together after the pandemic. But it's been, I wouldn't say it's one idea that sparked the whole thing, but it's a combination of a lot of different things. <laughs> you mentioned science fiction. So wh what is it about that particular genre that um, makes it a good vehicle for exploring themes like this? So I love science fiction because you can explore philosophical ideas in a very playful way. And it's actually a genre that, you know, people have a tendency to think it's light or it's uh, pure entertainment. But I think science fiction is very deep. You can go very deep into 
what are human beings doing with their condition? Uh, and then you could play with science, you could play with, um, you know, there's nothing more exciting than trying to predict the future. But for that, you actually have to study the past. And I think by understanding the human nature, which has been the same since 2000 years, I don't think we've changed that much. The progress is changing exponentially, but us as human beings, I think we have the same desires than what the Greeks, you know, were saying with all the mythology and the themes that are also a great inspiration for this film because it's all about hubris, you know, like we want to achieve always more. There is this, the great Icarus myth that we go so far that we burn our wings and then there's a downfall and that's the cycles of history. So I think to be a good science fiction writer, you have to love history. <laughs> and then you can try to predict from all the things we've done where we're going. And then a lot of things you just invent. And a lot is also from talking to people who are actually right now developing all those technologies. But uh, as we were discussing, uh, a lot of those things that I thought were so avant-garde are already dated <laughs> because the artificial intelligence technology is going so fast that I think, you know, like we've all been be taken by surprise how fast these things are developing. One of the things that surprised me when we watched the premiere at Sundance is how much the audience laughed at it in a good way, but it really played much more broadly comedic than I expected. So tell me about using comedy to set up the tone of the story. Yeah, uh, that's like the core of what I'm trying to do. And I don't know if I succeed or fail <laughs> every time, but I have this obsession that because life is so complex in its tonality itself, like through a day we go through soft desperation, through being, you know, elated by something. So I think as human beings, we, we, nothing is completely tragic or nothing is completely comic. There's a, always the merge of those emotions that are contradict, contradict, contradictory, sorry, and pulling us in different directions. Um, and that's why I love Chekhov or I love, uh, uh, you know, like uh, Polanski or uh, I love Paul Thomas Anderson. He's able to do that in a very masterfully and beautiful way. Uh, Charlie Kaufman. There are a lot of filmmakers that are able to have this tonality that is extremely complex because it always tries to do two things at the same time. Uh, and it's very difficult to do because you're trying to navigate. You know, you're asking a lot from the audience. You ask them to feel melancholia and then feel, you know, joy from a slapstick moment or a comic moment. So it is stretching and that's the work in the edit room where you have to fine tune it and find the tone that's gonna be specific and work with the film. And I've done that in my first film and sometimes some people don't like it because you're asking too many, too much work from going to, from one emotion to the other. But other people love it. They love that it's a reflection of who we are as human beings. There isn't like a completely dark day and then a completely joyful day. I think it's, it's uh, the life experience is very mixed and um, it's it's all mixed feeling. Sophie, tell me a little bit about your background. Did you did you dream of making movies when you were a little kid? And how did you come to pick film as your mode of creative expression? Um, I don't think I've 
would have ever imagined that as a kid because it was so the French education was so rigid that there is no way like you had to be it was very academic and I think I wanted to be more a writer uh, I was reading a lot and uh, but seeing some movies like The Purple Rose of Cairo or the Jack Jacques Tati or Godard like I was lucky that my parents exposed us to really good movies and going to the theater was like something very special we would go you know we didn't have access to what kids have today, the streamers and the constant content. So we were exposed to few fewer content, but of really high quality. And I think when I saw The Purple Rose of Cairo, I was maybe 12. And at that time, we were living in Brazil. And I remember thinking, wow, cinema can do that. It can entertain you and it can be sad and it can be opening all these little boxes in your head, like, you know, these Russian dolls, like where you feel. So this was very exciting. and. Um, and then, yeah, I think it was more, I came to storytelling more through literature. I was really reading a lot. Then I wanted to work in journalism and more documentary. And then it's just by going to Columbia University that that was also, uh, it says a lot about American education that it's so flexible. Like they let me, when I started to take more classes in fiction, uh, I asked the department at Columbia if I could change my kind of major towards more fiction and they said yes of course in France it would be like <laughs> no way you chose documentary and political science you have to stick to that so I was lucky that I could experiment and um, and I had incredible professors at Columbia there is James Chamus and uh, Dabashi was someone who introduced us to all the Middle Eastern cinema um, so like the access to knowledge and all these incredible movies was so, what I think put my passion into this one track that I gave myself three, four years after school, thinking if I can't make it, I'll go back to journalism and the things I know how to do, but I'm going to take a chance and it worked. <laughs> but it's, it's a lot of luck too, but, and perseverance. But <laughs> so what is it about film that excites you as an artist and a storyteller? I think the most exciting is you never know what's going to be next. And uh, making a movie is a bit like the life of the circus. Like you meet those people. I've been lucky to work with incredible collaborators and who are so excellent in their craft. And I don't think as a director, you're as excellent as the people that work with you. <laughs> and I think there's this certain humility to understand that, you know, you have a great production designer, a great composer, a great DP, and they're bringing, it's a collaboration. It's not just the director ego and, uh, and this I love. I love the working with the same people. And then from, it's this thing of creation that from nothing, suddenly you have something and that's, it's this beauty and it's a painful journey. And once you've done a movie, you're like, never again, it was too painful, but then you do it again. You know, it's like having children <laughs> a little bit. And I think Kubrick said like making a movie is like trying to write a poem on a roller coaster. And that's exactly how it feels. You're in this thing and you're trying to keep your, and then you, you constantly, you cannot predict what's going to happen. And I think that's the beauty and the excitement of filmmaking. And then when you're doing in the process of actually shooting the movie, there are moments that you feel you're almost sailing and you have a crew and the boat is going in the same, in the good direction. And for one day you don't have a storm and <laughs> it all feels good. <laughs> so there is this element, I think, of sailing, like it's a very tight crew 
and you're together and you don't know why you're doing this thing, but you're going to get somewhere. <laughs> and, and I don't know, I can't explain it, but I've talked to other directors. I think everyone feels this adrenaline and the pleasure of creation. I think our brains are wired for that, to create. And then when you've been given the possibility to do it, it's, uh, it's incredible. You know, it's every film, I think, is a miracle. <laughs> what would you say, what themes are you interested in as a storyteller and, and how do those show up in pod generation? So now I've developed this obsession with artificial intelligence from researching a little bit for the pod generation because I realized every time I thought like when we we're shooting and I thought, oh, we have a very, you know, we've figure out like things that are very new. They're already starting to exist, <laughs> like the artificial therapy. Um, you know, we've all seen like how ChatGPT has disrupted completely what we thought about chatbots. No one was taking it seriously last year. And now we realize these things are actually going to work and they're going to get better and better. And then now it's asking, it's a Pandora box. It's like so many philosophical questions, questions about ethics, questions about, is that the world that we want to live in? It feels it's already too late to even ask those questions because the machine, the exponentiality of those technologies uh, is making it impossible to, to have this debate. But I think we have, as filmmaker, we need to make documentaries and make fiction films about this because there's so many questions that are unanswered and I think the public needs to know and be part of the debate because it's going to affect our life at the level that we can't even imagine what it's going to do to us. And I don't want to sound like <laughs> alarmist, but from everything I've been reading and hearing, I wasn't taking internet seriously in the 90s. I was one of the first who was like, this thing is really slow, it's never going to work. <laughs> And I've made this mistake once. And this time I was like, no, this is serious, I think. And it's going to be doing things that are incredible. We were talking about, you know, for um, applications in the healthcare, like cancer. But it's also going to do things that are terribly dis disruptive to, you know, our willpower. If it starts to take decision for us, or we all, I think that's what the pod generation is trying to explore, that these things are so powerful that we we're slowly going to give some of our decision-making process trusting more the machine than ourselves. And this is when the problem starts because the tool becomes more powerful than the creator of the tool. And we become enslaved to a tool that was supposed to be just a tool. <laughs> and that's why in the movie, there's a screwdriver at one point. I don't want to say when that the character drops a screwdriver to remind us this is what a tool is. A tool should be something you could put aside and when you don't want to use it, you don't use it. But with artificial intelligence, it's going to be impossible. The tool is going to be omnipresent. Um, so there's a godlike effect that is for a science fiction writer is, you know, the most incredible subject until we're going to get replaced <laughs> by the machine writing better than us, the science fiction scenarios. I think one of the challenges of, you know, working on an independent film budget is always trying to achieve the size and scale that you want. So the visuals are very impressive in this film. So talk about your approach to getting that size and scale on a limited budget. Yeah, so the budget was really small. And I think the secret for me is always locations. If you do very good location scouting, and we shot in Belgium, in Brussels, 
and it's a city that's really interesting because it got destroyed a lot during the Second World War and they rebuilt in a very heteroclite way. So you could find, you know, art deco, uh, you could find ultra brutalist, modernist architecture. There's one skyscraper that was the size of <laughs> a New York <laughs> building where we shot. We found the only existing one. Um, but I think it's all location scout because you can't afford to build anything in this kind of scale of budget. And we have only one build, which is for the artificial intelligence eye, and it's just like a simple room. But all the rest we... And that's the part I love the most is when architecture and filmmaking meet. You know, they used to do that a lot in the 60s and some of my favorite um, sci-fi are the Godard, you know, like Alphaville. It's all taking advantage of Paris and the beauty of the architecture in Paris. Um, so I think there is a marriage between architecture and film that has been lost a little bit with all the CGI and the green screens. And so for me, I like sci-fi that feels very organic and still very human. So you do see actual stones and actual buildings and um, and that makes it possible in a budget. One of the things I have really loved about this movie is the score. So tell me about the score and working with your composers. Yeah, so uh, I worked with the Galperin brothers on my last film, on Madame Bovary, and I love their sensibility. They've, um, they're from Russian origins, but they've been in France for, they arrived when they were a teenager. And um, so they work together. It's a mystery. They never revealed their working process. So I don't know which one of the brothers composed what, and it's a very touchy subject. <laughs> Whenever you ask, like, who is doing what, they won't say it. And they just look at each other and they, they don't say it. But um, I suspect that Evgeny is the more classically trained, and I think Sasha is more into the modernist electronic music, and then they merge, um, and then they create this music that is... Um, very specific and it's it's very beautiful because they don't approach it as we're going to make science fiction music. They approach it what is right for the story and the emotion of the characters. Um, so it's it's um, it's a pleasure to work with them and I, I, I love the sensibility. And Evgeny had his first album came out uh, this year and he gave us one of the pieces in the film is from that album and it's been very successful. And so now he's going to make his albums too as well. So how do you use the score to set the tone of the film and how does it then kind of collaborate with the sound design? Yeah, so it was important for Evgeny and Sasha and me that if it's a comedy, but you don't want to have funny music because that's the worst enemy of comedy, actually, when you're trying to impose an emotion to the audience. So I think it's more productive to work against Sometimes the comedy, like it's like this thing of the sad clown. When the music is really sad, it's funny because it's the character is put in such a, a tragic moment, but you have some distance and irony as a as an audience. So you can so the music can play a bit against you know what's expected and it can work beautifully. And also because Evgeny and Sasha would never do music that is, you know, like the kind of obvious cliche of like, oh, now is the funny moment. They, that's not their thing. <laughs> and when you work with them, you know that they're gonna make very, I mean, they're very minimal in their approach. So they left, they're, they're I, I think that's what's great about them is they let the sound design take over when it needs to, especially that we had such powerful tools as the, the Atmos and we needed all these sounds of nature to take over at one point or in the dream. So the music is actually, 
letting the sound breathe and there's this beautiful balance I think that was found you know this never overwhelming and also we we put a lot of additional music there was jazz from the 30s and the 40s because that, that had like a very organic feel that was going against science fiction so it's more like vintage futuristic <laughs> retro music that goes well I think with you know against this idea that sci-fi everything should be computer generated one of my favorite sound design elements in the film is the actual pod itself. How did you develop the sound design of that element? Oh, yeah, we had so much fun. We tried so many things, and I think there's some nuclear submarine sounds in there. We wanted to create a world where you feel like this company has made almost like a sound vault, you know, around those babies because they're still, I mean, it's vulnerable. You don't want to feel they're being exposed to any danger or toxicity or things that could put their development in, in danger. So the sound had to feel something that really takes you into the pod and you feel you're in this aquatic world and no one knows how it sounds there. But apparently in the womb, uh, the sounds are pretty high level uh, for the, that's why there's all these white noise machines, you know, when babies are born, like to mimic a little bit what they hear. They hear all the artery and the heart of the mother. So for us, like we just wanted to make it more like a cocoon, an aquatic cocoon that when you go in, you're sucked into that world and you kind of want to stay there and experience what the baby, you know, it's an immersive experience and try to feel what the baby's feeling. So it's not realistic. I think you don't, you wouldn't imagine those sounds really in the in the real womb. But we're not in a real womb, so we could do whatever we wanted with sound. <laughs> so tell me about that collaboration process with your sound designer. Were there like, did you try approaches that didn't work and then come back from them? Well, we tried a lot of things because it was very new for all of us. It's like we're creating a new technology and the sound is as important as the image. Uh, for me as a filmmaker, I think like 50% of your experience or maybe 70% that we're not aware of is really sound. Um, so <clears throat> we talked a lot about what, you know, what should be that soundscape. And we tried things and there's some things that failed miserably because they were too gimmicky or they were too, they felt like, you know, we wouldn't take it seriously. So that was the, the challenge is you want to take this seriously. You want to do the suspension of disbelief that there's really a baby in this womb, but you're still doing a comedy and you're playing with technology and you're trying to imagine what would Steve Jobs would have done if he had created a womb. He would have found like the most sedu seductive way to make you buy this thing. <laughs> so, but still it had to feel like you know, that he wasn't endangering the baby. So these all those questions we were asking ourselves uh, when we were trying sounds. And and I think at the end, uh, David uh, Vranken uh, found like this balance between being playful, but not gimmicky and still have, and being beautiful because you are, you know, it's like when you take a kid to the aquarium and you, you wanna have this sense of fascination and, that nature is doing something wonderful and you want to be part of it. <laughs> well, one of the themes I feel like you're exploring with the film is how technology can alienate us from nature to the extent that your characters actually book time and visit nature pods. Tell us about designing that soundscape. Yeah, so the nature pod is the example of what I think New Yorkers <laughs> would do, you know, when they go soul cycling. You have Central Park next door, but you're still going in a little box to cycle and you pay a fortune for this. <laughs> and so we're trying to imagine a sound that would 
make you feel relaxed and reconnecting with nature. So there's a lot of, um, but there's a lot of things that are also not in all the layers of this sound. Um, David played with things that don't come from nature, but you wouldn't know. Uh, and that he's very good at that. For instance, he would say like he never, for rain, he never used real rain. He used showers because the rain never sounds fine and then for showers you usually use rain <laughs> so you know it's you learn so much that's why i love about the sound process is like they have their own alphabet and their own way of understanding how sound can affect you and you would never know as an audience but it works at a subliminal level and it's super important so i think when she goes into this pod you feel relaxed and you feel reconnected with something very deep that is missing in the life of those new yorkers that are completely disconnected from very essential things. We're made as human beings for, you know, millions of years of evolution. We, we have to do two things, which is contemplate nature and disconnect and use our archaic brain and not use our frontal cortex that much. And we don't do that anymore because we're constantly on a little thing. And we have to listen to sounds that are soothing, not like the cars and the, you know, you can imagine in the future would be electric cars, but still the sound level in New York uh, for anyone who's been in New York, is way too aggressive for our brain. And so we were trying to show that, you know, they're trying to recreate artificially those cocoons of things that should be part of our lives, but are not there anymore. And then toward the end of the film, you remove your characters from the city entirely and place them in this really bucolic, natural setting. So how did the sound design reinforce that sense of place and the contrast? Yes, yeah, so this was when the big explosion of, you know, sound uh, sensation uh, had to come to us. And, and that's when we were so lucky to get the, the Atmos uh, technology because uh, the whole movie, you were in a sort of tunnel in the city where the sounds are kind of creating some sort of oppression on the characters, but they're not fully aware of it. And once they get to nature, suddenly it's... You know, like you have to feel it. And that's what I discovered working with Atmos, that it's, you don't feel the sound in your brain, you feel it in your chest and in your body. It's a very visceral experience. And it's very close to the experience you have as a New Yorker when you go to the countryside for a weekend <laughs> to kind of re, you know, reconnect and, and take all the stress away. So that was the sensation we wanted. And I was so surprised that the sound was able to do that. Like I felt it viscerally in the flesh that suddenly we had a tool that I didn't know anything about. <laughs> and the sound designer also, and the sound mixer was their first time uh, working with Atmos. We could not believe the power of this thing. And for me, it was, you know, the cliche of, oh, this is only for big action movies and uh, where you need like wars. And But no, actually, you could use it just, you know, there's uh, the sound of a wave in a dream and you feel the wave coming from this side and, and starting to take you over like, and it's a very physical, visceral sensation, almost like a child, you know, for the first time at a beach, they can have this sensation of 
the the just the the materiality, the physicality, and I think that for filmmakers is incredible because we're dealing with image on the 2D, and suddenly the sound is giving a third dimension to the image where you're actually feeling the sensation that the characters are feeling. So it's it became a complete subjective experience to go to nature with those two characters and feel what they're feeling. And we had so much fun. I mean, we played with a lot of elements when they sit on this dune, you know, you could feel the the power of the of those waves, but also there's a lot of things happening behind in nature. Um, and so we didn't want it to be distracting, but I think at one point we kind of took away and went on a more minimalist route to just let it be powerful and live and drag you into the scenes. And I really think it works. It's yeah. really beautiful. I love the way you talk about Atmos. Did you and your sound team, did you set up any rules for how you were going to use Atmos in the track? Yeah, yeah. No, so we had those very deep conversations and then we decided we didn't want to do like the big studios, like it's everywhere all the time, all at once, <laughs> all over you, <laughs> constantly, <laughs> this kind of approach. <laughs> so we're like, we're going to use this as a narrative tool. And this was immediately a sort of conversation I had with the, the sound designer, David. We were like, yeah, this has to support the storytelling. So let's use it when, whenever there's artificial intelligence in the film. So when they go to the eye therapist, at the beginning, we didn't think about this, but then it became clear that the world of the artificial intelligence to be that seductive had to have a sound that that takes you over and you have to surrender to that technology. And it's so well done that you're not aware that when you're in front of that eye, the eye is a digital thing, but because of the sound, it sounds an organic thing. And it's very confusing for the characters and for the audience. Is this eye living? Because it's blinking and it has moist sounds. So we, we played so much with this, like, why would this eye be moist and have almost tears and blink when it's just a digital thing? Why did you not tell Alvi you were on the wait list, Rachel? Oh, because I know him. There's always so much resistance. Why would he resist? Because he wants a natural child. When you say natural child, what do you mean exactly, Rachel? As in a natural pregnancy? Like as in I, I would get pregnant and then I would give birth. But in the intelligence of the people who made that technology, uh, we imagine that they would make it on purpose to confuse you. And so it's because our brain is made to actually respond more to organic things in the world. We've been conditioned like this, so it is even more impactful, I think. So this, for that, the Atmos was incredible because you're sitting in terms of, you know, mise-en-scene, there isn't much you could do. You have an eye and you have a character sitting. And then once you have the sound there with this voice all around you and uh, suddenly you're living the same experience than your characters. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, the conversation was every time they go, so when they go to the nature pod, when they're looking at the baby in the pod, you want to be immersed, you want to be in the Atmos world. And then finally, the third act, when they go to nature, you want to live that full experience. And the rest, it was all, we're always talking about like restricting sound and letting it live. So it was a sort of language that we invented and we're all, it was really interesting because the mixer, um, Mathieu and David, the sound designer and me, we are very aligned in the philosophy of how to use Atmos in the best way. 
And in the most, you know, I think sometimes less is more, like you're very specific about using a tool and this is a tool. Um, but now in the process, we all got addicted. <laughs> like I think even on the writing, if I had known this, because I didn't know anything of this, but now I think if I write again about science fiction, artificial intelligence, or even movies that are period film, I would keep in mind like what the power of what Atmos can do for, you know, dream scenes, for um, in a very specific narrative way. I think it should be part of your writing process because r screenwriters write mainly for the image and the storytelling. And we forget that the sound is like, again, I think like 70% of your experience, but in subliminal way. So you, you're not aware of it until you're aware of it as a filmmaker and you realize, oh my God, I should have paid attention to sound <laughs> much earlier because it's so important. You know, we've seen it in gravity. I mean, gravity would never be gravity without, the, it was the first time I've seen a film where I felt, oh, the sound is almost everything in that film. It is what made me feel, fe I felt that I lived in space for two hours and it wasn't the image. The sound made me feel I was living that experience. Um, so yeah, it's a magical thing. It's very powerful. You talked about the, the sound design of the AI therapist, which is just amazing. But one of the things that I found the most remarkable was her voice. Can you talk about your exploration of the sound design for the AI therapist voice? So I, this I decided at the script level that it was going to be human voices. And of course, I'm indebted to uh, her, to Spike Jones. Uh, I had heard that they tried several human voices and they finally, when they put Scarlett Johansson voice, everything came together <laughs> because people could imagine her. And in our case, we have the eye, which is very powerful. It's very creepy. And so we didn't need the voice of a famous actress for people to imagine you know, a feminine figure. We just needed a human voice to play again with this idea of the organic. And it's so confusing because it is a character and we have different human voices for each device. So the Mashas, which are the cognitive assistant, have a voice. The uh, Lena, which is the voice a bit like Alexa at home, is another actress. And then uh, the artificial intelligence therapy is also another actress. And they're all wonderful actors that I cast in London. They all do amazing podcast work. And, and when you get into the work of casting voices, I think it's so interesting because, you know, some voices can do certain things and they carry emotions and they carry something, you know, that only human voices can have. So we played with that. And then in the mix, uh, Mathieu had many ideas of how to diffuse the voice in the room. So it would feel like it would reverberate all around you. And then the Atmos helped with make it more dense. Like, I don't know what the vocabulary would be to describe what we did with those voices, but I felt they became very uh, alive, you know, and present and, and I think that's what the future is going to be. Like you got, those voices are going to live with you constantly and they're going to be part of your, you're going to forget that there are all those voices, but they're going to be there and talking to us. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was just a remarkable effect because it, it, it felt like her voice was coming at me from everywhere in the room. And the effect was that it made me feel like her voice was actually in my head. Yeah, yeah, that was the idea. Yeah, because she's a... You know, that's the, I mean, maybe that's going to be also the thing when we start having those ships that we could put in our mind and have a dialogue with ourselves, with those voices inside of us, that that might be a possibility of where this is going. Um, but I think, 
yeah, we need voices. Like, why do we listen to so many podcasts? Why little children always ask for stories? And because in the womb, they heard the voice of their mother so present and all over them. And also, I think, you know, in their flesh, they could feel the reverberation of these voices. And I think that's what Admos is doing in a way. You're like in this artificial intelligence thing, you're building a womb with this voice that is controlling you in a way and is part of you. So it's it's beautiful that the sound tools are making the thing become part of your flesh. So it's not more an intellectualization. It's really a physical response. And this I had no idea it could, because I don't go to see big action movies because the sound is too high. For, I'm very sensitive to sound, so I can't deal with like car chase. <laughs> but now to realize you could do this at a very artistic level for small movies. And it's one more tool of like making the production value of your movie. Suddenly it feels like a big movie, but people are not aware. It's not a big movie. It's a small movie, but it has great sound. <laughs> And it's uh, it's a tool that is amazing. I've always said that when I, I was teaching a, a little bit at Columbia University, a workshop in film, like short film direction, and I always say to the students, you don't realize you're not paying any attention to the sound. And the sound in a short film is as important. You're creating an atmosphere. You're trying to pull p people in, unless you only have two people talking in a room for 10 minutes. But the sound is a tool that is under taught, I, th I think, in film school and that people don't pay attention on in post-production. And I think it's a huge mistake because it's, um, we are like, there are filmmakers like David Lynch who pay extreme attention to sound and like build their careers on sound and sound design and music. And you see the films, they stay with you. They touch a subconscious, very deep thing inside of you because they have the, the sound to support it. So I couldn't, I mean, I can go on and on, but I think I've discovered talking with my the team, the sound mixer and the sound designer and learning from them and seeing how passionate they are about it because it's that's the great thing. Like I feel every sound designer I worked with and I've only done three features, they're so passionate about their craft and the art and they open the door to you as a filmmaker and then you realize you're not doing just a visual craft, you're doing an audiovisual craft, you know, and then you have to marry both. And uh, so that was wonderful, the experience. So you've also done a Dolby Vision grade of the film. What are some of the sequences that stood out for you in the Vision grade? Uh, well, the Dolby Vision, I think, is a bit the same approach than for the um, the sound, it's really the artificial. Whenever there's the, the eye, the artificial intelligence, the dreams, you want the reality to feel a bit enhanced and a little bit, you're not sure why, but this feels different than the, their reality, which is, you know, she goes to an office, it's pretty boring. Uh, he goes to his university to teach. So I think it's the same, I would say the same parameters and the same tools that we would use to enhance the world of technology and then the world of nature that suddenly when they go to nature uh, we had because the because of climate change actually it's pretty sad but the nature in where we shot was very dry uh, so he had lost some of its vibrancy and color so we had to saturate a little bit so it would feel you know very fresh and lust like you would you want to feel the moist and the all the pleasure of nature but when you know it hasn't been raining and we shot in south of france for five years uh, and all this forest actually burnt after the, the shoot. So when you deal with these things that nature, you know, you know it doesn't look 
that great in some parts, then yeah, a little bit of Dolby, <laughs> Dolby uh, vision can enhance and help, you know, to to tweak it a little bit. And we've we've done that in color correction, but it was a great tool for that too. So, what are you hoping that audiences take from the film? What do you want them to be thinking about when they leave the theater? Well, I think the main it's hard to say as a filmmaker because you're not making, you know, propaganda or advertising where you want one message, you know. You hope that it's complex and people have very mixed feelings and and ask themselves questions. But I think the main question would be what is the price of convenience? You know, like for us as human beings looking forward, are we ready to give that much of ourselves just for convenience? Just for things to be easy, are we ready to not carry children anymore in our wombs? Not, you know, dealing with a lot of things that we should be dealing because I think life is a process. And if it's just goal oriented, we're going to lose a lot of things about ourselves, about our humanity, about our relationship to our children. Um, and I don't think there is any, it's not easy. There is a lot of pain in the journey, but like if you eradicate all this to just make it simple and easy and convenient, chances are that you're going to lose a lot of what makes us interesting as human beings. <laughs> Many thanks to Sophie for taking the time to discuss her wonderful film with us. The Pod Generation is now playing at a theater near you. You can find links as always in our show notes. If you'd like even more conversations with artists and filmmakers about how they use technology to tell their stories, please be sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube in our show notes. Or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you'll find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. Thanks for joining us.